let's talk a little bit about the landscape. Because when I first mm-hmm. started hearing about these cyber attacks on hospitals or other healthcare organizations, I thought, why? Why are these criminals like targeting right. a bank or some Question. other financial institution, right? And you think the hospital, so what? Do they so, have? what Sa- so what? Sally got her blood drawn two days ago. Mm-hmm. But what they have realized, cyber criminals, unfortunately, is that if they can shut it down, the services that are being provided are so absolutely life and death, I mean, literally, that they're able to get the ransom money for it. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Rural Impact. I'm Michelle Rathman, and as I do every single time we're together, I mean it when I say I'm so thankful that you've joined us. And with that, I'm very appreciative for the follows, the likes, the shares. I'm loving the notes that you're sending me on LinkedIn. And so thank you for that. It means so much to me that these subjects that we're talking about are important to you as well. So today's episode is a very special one because we are talking about one of my favorite subjects, This is my 35th year in the industry, which is healthcare. And even if you don't think you want to listen to this conversation, you might want to reconsider that when I tell you that according to a recent poll conducted by the Associated Press, and you can rely on that data, I think, and that is also with the Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, almost 80% of Americans are concerned about accessing quality healthcare when they need it. 80%. So if you're the 20% who's not thinking about it, you might want to stick around because at some point in time in your life, it will be you. And of that, of those who were surveyed, Americans' satisfaction with the U.S. healthcare system is at an all-time low. More than half of the respondents of this poll said that the country does not handle healthcare well, either in general or for older adults. And when we're talking about rural, we all know that whole older, sicker, poorer factor And I wish we were all getting younger, but we aren't. We are aging. And so in addition to that, I'll give you one more statistic. 70% of those respondents said the United States is not handling the cost of prescription drugs or mental health care well. We know that, okay? So now if that was not enough to keep you tuned in, I want to share with you that there has never been a more challenging time for our rural health systems. And by systems, I mean, I think about it as a big, huge bundle of uh, mangled Christmas lights, if you will, because there is not really one cohesive system. There is a patchwork and they've been handed. This is not something that just happened overnight. This has been going on for years and years and years. And leaders of these organizations, the last thing I want to say about it is I think it's important to understand that leaders different than big health systems, they really understand. And I'm not saying big health systems don't, but they understand the pain points of their communities. They know their communities. They stop them in the grocery store and talk about these pain points, everything from access to insurance to primary care and so forth. So it's a big subject. You know, I say there are no light subjects, but we hope to enlighten you with that. And it's really my pleasure to introduce you to someone I've known for over 20 years, I think is the right number. We uh, stop counting now, Michelle. We stop. This is Kelly Arduino. And, <laughs> and, and Kelly is a healthcare industry leader 
and a partner with Wifleet, which is a top 20 accounting and consulting firm. And Kelly has over 25 years of diverse healthcare experience, which gives her a really unique perspective. And on top of that, as a bonus, and this is something I just adore about her background, is that she was also a psychotherapist and an academic researcher in health outcomes and spent a number of years as a health strategy consultant. So I read you those statistics up top from that survey because it is understanding both sides of the coin. And I know very few people who know those sides of the coin, including the financial piece, more than you. So Kelly, welcome to The Rural Impact. It's really a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here too. You know, in addition to my bio, I did grow up in a rural town. So we had a critical access hospital where one time my sister and my mom and I were playing ball in the backyard and my sister threw a baseball right into my face on my nose. And where did we go? We went to that critical access hospital. So rural is always near and dear to my heart and I have lived it and it's been an important part of my career, Michelle. So thank you. Yeah, we've had the pleasure of working on several projects together. And I mean, we understand, I mean, we both have different perspectives, but we both understand that whole picture. And I think that's really what I want to talk about, because I I had a conversation this morning with three CEOs of critical access hospitals, and we were talking about the fact that while each of them have their governance structure, one's a 501c3, one's a public hospital district, another one's a county-owned facility, but they share the same challenges and they have to arrive at the solution. And we talked about the fact that we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about challenges. Like we know that we are challenged with our aging facilities. We know that we have major workforce challenges. We know that COVID decimated the rural health workforce, health workforce in general. Uh, And so one of the things I want to talk to you about today, Kelly, is that the work that you are doing and th- this is not just plugging Whipley. This is saying you guys are really focused on solutions versus the challenges. And to understand the solutions, I think it's important to know the, the challenges, but you're focused on solutions. And so I want to talk to you about, which is kind of go down our tick sheet of challenges and then talk a little bit about what can people expect in terms of if they're going to find a solution in 2024 and beyond, what are the things that they need to be thinking about? So let's first talk about workforce challenges. Because we, you cannot escape any conversation in this world without talking about the shortages of doctors, nurses, phlebotomists, so forth and so on. Well, and Michelle, I mean, the workforce challenges extend even beyond clinical care, right? They extend to the housekeepers and the folks in the cafeteria and all parts of the organization. In the last, I'd say, year or so, we've seen organizations start to outsource some of their, what I call back office functions mm-hmm. so that they could re- really focus on their front of the house type solutions around clinical care, doctors, nurses, et cetera. So as a solution to making sure that your systems and your security is in place and you have the right expertise, that's something that people are starting to outsource. If you are struggling to find the right mix of people who can do the financial statements and or the billing. You know, how many times have we seen where a hospital's AR in a rural area will just spike up because Sally was on vacation in August? Yes. Right? And so the challenge, which was always there, is now kind of multiplied 
because it's just the stakes are so much higher because every dollar really counts. And so we're starting to see organizations outsource that back office function because then they know they have the consistency, the right kind of expertise. And, and let's be frank, it is a lot of time and energy to recruit somebody, mm-hmm. make sure that's the right person, you know, verifying their credentials, get them on board to the particular nuances of your situation and then kind of monitor their performance. So, yeah, I've never is, been more aware of how, I mean, it is the most complex. You don't just step out of a general accounting background and then pick up because it is the most highly regulated and it's, I mean, it is a bear. And then you've got, we talk about the challenges because on top of those precious AR days, there's all of the, let's talk about a few of the other challenges where, I mean, there are some things that you can have, that you can easily remedy with solutions, but there are things like prior authorization. Right. There are things like, you know, the multitude of insurance plans that kind of a hodgepodge. So these are some of the things that that hospital leaders and healthcare leaders are are juggling Mm -hmm. with is that it is so complex. So let's stay on workforce. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is two, two things. Some believe that the solution to some of these challenges is AI. Mm-hmm. Some are coming a little bit kicking and screaming. So how does AI and technology play a role in your mind to address some of the workforce challenges that we are experiencing today? And I don't think there's any toothpaste to put back in the tube. I don't think we're going back to fully staffed organizations. No, we're absolutely not. So I see the outsourcing as a bit of a transitional or bridge to technology. and. Mm-hmm. This is not a situation where we just flick on the light switch and all of a sudden it's happened, but it's more of rethinking how business behind the scenes for healthcare gets done. What's kind of interesting with AI because originally it started out, and there's still a lot of it, AI was all around the kind of the clinical side of the house, right? How do you optimize the diagnosis or take ensure that the, the person is identified as at risk for falls and do interventions? But what we've found, at least in the evolution of AI right now, Mm -hmm. is that AI is almost better suited in the immediate term. And and, and it's going to be a longer term evolution. Believe me, it's Mm -hmm. not, again, one and done. AI is well suited to automation of mundane tasks. And that's that whole back of the house, right? Non-clinical stuff that is absolutely essential for the financial health of the organization, and that also, again, has these workforce challenges. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what we see with AI, it's never a silver bullet for anything, but organizations are starting to think about what does this look like over a longer term? How would I roll out AI solutions? Mm Because think of them as not a one and done, but just part of the whole ecosystem of your employers, they're almost like, hey, we're hiring a new employee and how does AI come on board with us? Mm-hmm. And then rolling that out over time. And where does where do you get the most bang for the buck first? Is this solution compatible with other solutions that we, we might want to add in the future? And at, at first, I think there was some worry that it was going to replace people, but there's a heck of a lot of manual work that gets done, especially at rural hospitals, that we would want to take that person and let them spend more time doing thinking or 
you know, interacting with the patients or the processes of the billing instead of the actual billing. Mm -hmm. So I think that AI has a place. It, like you said, it's inevitable. There just is not a bunch of people waiting to be hired. We're just going to have to think of it as another workforce partner. Absolutely. And with that, communicate to communities who might be skeptical, maybe worried about other things. For example, we talk about some of the challenges. I mean, I, I wanted to talk about financial challenges. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that Not only is it financial challenges from the fact that there are just money losing services that rural health organizations must provide to care for their community. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at OB units being shut down everywhere. Tragic because women, there's swaths of land the size of counties, the size of a state, a small state that doesn't have a single OB provider. But that's a big financial uh, challenge to operate a service that you don't have the volumes. But let's talk about the financial challenges that are associated with just cybersecurity, Kelly. We have seen, literally, we have seen hospitals have to shut their doors mm-hmm. indefinitely because of the financial hit they took about cybersecurity. Talk to us about some of the solutions for that. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about the landscape. Because when I first mm-hmm. started hearing about these cyber attacks on hospitals or other healthcare organizations, I thought, why? Why aren't these criminals like targeting right. a bank or some Question. other financial institution, right? And you think the hospital, so what? Do so, they what? Have? so what? Sally got her blood drawn two days ago. Mm-hmm. But what they have realized, cyber criminals, unfortunately, is that if they can shut it down, The services that are being provided are so absolutely life and death, I mean, literally, that they're able to get the ransom money for it, right? That's, I know, my my brain doesn't go there, Michelle, but that is what we've been starting to understand about why healthcare organizations have been, you know, kind of disproportionately targeted, because literally what they're doing is life and death. Mm -hmm. And so organizations have been paying the ransom to get that undone, because you're right, they absolutely do shut down. And for many years, we saw that cybersecurity, again, was kind of a low priority. It has really bubbled to the top. And back to this notion of many organizations don't even know where to start. They don't even know what their vulnerabilities are. You know, some of the solutions are hiring someone for a relatively low fee to hack you, like a friendly person. So you yes, I, I've been a, I've been a party to understanding that that was going on. I couldn't say anything. Yeah, absolutely, because that's how you learn where your vulnerabilities are. Unfortunately, and if it's not someone friendly, it certainly could take your organization to its knees. So I, that is a significant. And people think it's not hitting small rural hospitals, but that is just simply not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, no one a, is exempt. It's unfortunate because it's kind of a pylon, and we've got all these other stressors around finances and you think, oh man, I don't even want to have to shell out more money to get our organization kind of cyber tight. But mm-hmm. I think it's a reality in this next couple of years. And you know, Kelly, I have seen it have a, a kind of a ripple effect in that it, because patients in general, I tell people, I don't have to know what's happening under the hood of my car to be able to stick the key in and drive it. And so when people hear cybersecurity threats and they, we talk about how important it is to access your electronic health records and our communities are equating being online and electronic health records with an infringement or encroachment on their privacy. And so we've got a really big job to do to educate our community members about the importance of embracing technology and at the same time 
the amount of investments that must be made mm-hmm. in protecting that very important data because it's the data that they're after. Right, right. Yeah. And HIPAA, you know, which is our protection act around mm-hmm. patient privacy, has to be more than just a checkbox and done. It really is kind of a cultural shift in the organization for mm-hmm. everyone to really understand that that privacy is really important and so is that security. And we can't be really just cavalier and expect that that the organization isn't going to be a target. That's right. All right. So let's talk about some other threats here and potential solutions. You and I have had many a conversation about this, most, mostly banging our heads against the wall about private equity in healthcare. And I'm, of course, very focused on the rural aspect because if you follow the work of Sarah Jane Tribble, I hope that you all do. She writes an amazing, a lot of pieces about rural health and she has talked about private equity and rural health organizations. I do not see it as an opportunity. I see it as a threat because there's nothing, I have no evidence to show me otherwise. So talk to us, Kelly, about how are rural health organizations kind of fortifying themselves not to be looking around for, forgive the term, a savior, which I think is often what happens, how a private equity firm is able to woo an organization into coming over to the dark side. I did say that out loud. (laughs) Actually, Sarah just interviewed me last week. Oh, great. (laughs) So I have this at the ready. Um, One of the things that I've talked about, and we haven't seen it for a while, but I think it's time to bring it back. So I've always felt like rural is scrappy, right? They're they're always getting thrown all these different uh, curveballs and then they figure out something to do. Mm-hmm. Well, she asked me for examples in, about what I'm going to tell you. And I said, gosh, I haven't seen any for a while because they're, they're kind of old now. But when organizations were really struggling with leadership in particular, right? This is mm-hmm. often when we see the board throw up their hands and be like, let's bring in a private equity firm because they just can't find the right leader or their management company just isn't working out. And it's kind of a revolving door around leadership. I think that's one of the times when the organization is most vulnerable to making a decision like private equity. Well, back in the day, what happened was they would dig deep in their community and they would say, even if someone does not have healthcare experience, is there a leader who can help marshal the troops, who can help kind of think about what we need to do differently that isn't, you talked about it in the very beginning of this, truly invested in the community. Mm -hmm. I remember a hospital in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Heck, there's only 750,000 people in the whole Upper Peninsula. They recruited the retired CEO from the mill. Oh, yeah. Paper mill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he served for almost eight years and he actually got a new hospital built where his predecessors had tried three times and failed. Hmm. But he lived there. He knew the people. He was truly invested in the community. And he brought over the CFO who was from the construction business. And she, again, didn't know a lot. She relied on a lot of external consultants to help with the nuances that are associated with finances. Mm -hmm. But again, she had a vested interest in making that go. We've started to see some of those folks retire, mm-hmm. but opening up the thought process on what could we do? You know, sometimes we get so fixated and, oh my gosh, they have to have this specialty knowledge 
around leadership. And really, to me, especially in the rural, the most, when I look at the most successful rural hospitals, they are the ones with the com- committed leaders that live in the community that are just involved in every facet. I know you can think of a few as well. You know, absolutely. And part of it is, as well, is really being able to, and this is where your background and psychotherapy comes into mind, is that being able to really identify when it's too risky or healthy risk. And I think we can agree that this is, you know, the year 2024, we are faced with some of the like I said in the very beginning, some of the most challenging times that I can recall, and we've been through some challenging times in, in rural health, to be sure, but never so many threats coming from so many different directions. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to paint the picture that every single rural hospital is struggling to to survive, because mm-hmm. to your point, you have seen rural hospitals and health organizations truly thrive, mm-hmm. maintain their independence. Yep grow their services for their community. And that doesn't happen overnight, but it does happy, happen with a healthy dose of healthy risk-taking. And to your point, surrounding yourself with individuals who are eager, willing, well-prepared to develop their leadership skills to you know carry things forward. All right, Kelly. So I think that between the two of us and a few other people, we could solve a lot of problems in theory. Well, we can sure try, Michelle. I know that uh, we're both committed to the success of this space. And so I really appreciate you having me on. Well, I'm so appreciative that you're here. Folks who know me know that not on my watch, if I can help it, no more rural hospital closures. We got to turn the ship around and we need thriving rural hospitals. So this is great. And as always, again, I just thank you for tuning in um, to the Rural Impact. And we're going to see you as our continuing series on Arriving at Thriving goes on. We're going to be having another series that's focused on rural housing and homelessness, rural transportation. So we're going to cover all of these topics and more. Thanks again for joining us. Take good care until next time on The Rural Impact. You've just heard a conversation about the role that local and state governments can play in ensuring every member of the community has the resources needed to not only survive, but thrive. Join Michelle and special guests, Dr. Catherine Ortega-Courtney and Dominic Capello for a special Civic Leader Power Hour and discover how 100% Community is working to address disparities in housing, food, transportation, access to healthcare, early childhood development, job training, and the others that make up the 10 vital services essential for surviving and thriving. Hear from the creators of the data-informed plan transforming communities across New Mexico and other parts of the country. If you are currently working for a county or civic government, this is an invitation for you to make an impact like no other. In just one hour, you'll be empowered and inspired to make 2024 the year that closes gaps and opens doors for everyone in your community to thrive. Visit theruralimpact.com to save your spot today.